0: 24 to start. I just want to read one more, um, one more verse that will encourage us. First Timothy 4:13 says this, and I've been thinking about this all week as well. Until I come, this is Paul talking to Timothy. He said, "Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching." And I just thought that it was cool because I came across that verse this week, and it just reminded me of how important the. Uh, the public reading of Scripture. Last week and this week, we've had significant amounts of Scripture that we're going to cover. And I just love the fact because we know that God's Word is alive and it speaks to us and it does things to us. So it's not just your private time that is beneficial. It's actually being here for the communal public reading of Scripture. So we're going to do that in just a second. But before we get into the new section of Acts that we're going to cover today, I want to just remind you of where we've been, specifically what we covered last week. So let's just do a real quick recap of where we were. So Paul was arrested last week by some Roman officials, and the reason was because he was in Jerusalem, and he just made all of the religious Jews super mad, and so it created this commotion. And the Roman officials were basically arresting him to prevent any further action against Paul. They were so mad because their leaders had told them that Paul was spreading lies about their faith. Of course, we know that he didn't because the primary lie that they accused him of was telling the people that both Jew and Gentile would be welcome in God's renewed kingdom. I mean, he's just preaching the gospel, and so they're super mad about that. So he's standing on the steps of the barracks, and he delivers his testimony. And because of that, they decided, okay, we're not really sure, the Roman officials are not really sure what has caused such a commotion, so they uh, send him to be examined, is what they call it. They're going to have him flogged, basically going to torture him, hoping that he'll tell them the truth. And so he goes there, and then all of a sudden, Paul reveals kind of a get out of jail free card, as I called it last week, that he is a Roman citizen. And they have no reason to flog him. And so they're like, uh oh. And it sets into motion this entire chain of events that we realize is basically God's provision from when Paul was born. So he was born a Roman citizen, but he was also born into the line of Pharisees, the most devout version of his faith. And because of that, he could not be harmed. He had to be protected by the Roman officials. And so the whole situation goes down. The local mayor, as we call them, was like, I don't know what to do about this. I'm just going to send you to the governor Felix. And that's where we pick up the story today in Acts chapter 24. So if you're there, starting in verse 1, whether it's in your Bibles or in your Acts journal, we're going to read a good portion of Scripture today. We're going to stop every once in a while. We're going to talk about what's happening. Then we're going to just talk briefly about a takeaway. But I want you to really focus on the text. I want you to know what's happening because there's so much that they recorded that is so important for us today. So, Acts 24, verse 1 says this And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, And now, real quick, before we get there, I just want you to imagine it's like a courtroom type setting. Not like, it's not because they didn't have that like we have it now, but that's what it would be like in our context. So there's this group of elders, there's the high priest, and basically they're equivalent of a lawyer. It calls him a spokesperson, to tertullus. And he's there in front of this audience and he's making his case against Paul. So this is what he says. "'Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation.'" Basically, he's being a suck-up right now. (laughs) In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, saying, well, we don't really want to waste your time, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. (laughs) Man, he's pretty popular. And, I mean, without social media, that's impressive. I'm not going to lie. And as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. This is Paul's response. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I like this line, I cheerfully make my defense. There he's like, you're not going to get me down, jerks. I'm going to cheerfully make my defense. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which we know is the new Christianity, that's what they were called at that point, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept." That there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I will always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Paul's just saying, Hey, I'm not not trying to do anybody wrong. Verse 17 Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while I was standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul reminisces back to what happened. He says, I have proclaimed the gospel. I have proclaimed that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and that's the only thing that they're mad about. He says, I have, no, I have nothing that I've done wrong. They are simply mad at me for this one thing, that I say that both Jew and Gentile, meaning insider and outsider to this particular group of people, will be included in God's renewed kingdom." That's what they're accusing him of. Verse 22, it says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, meaning he really knows these people, so this is a good thing he's in front of them, putting them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Like, Felix kind of appears like a decent guy, but we'll see that he's not. (laughs) After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you at the time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. What a great name. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Felix knows there's nothing wrong, but he wanted to do them a favor. We see that Felix doesn't really actually have good character. For one, we notice that Felix's wife is actually Jewish. And so she has an association with the group of people who are accusing Paul. She has social pressure. And so not only does Paul have to deal with the crowd, but he's probably getting some pressure from wifey as well, which, men, you know, like, tough spot, right? But the passage tells us that Paul's that he alarms Felix with his message. And so Felix simply sends him away, and he's hoping that Paul will pay for his freedom. That's what it talks about. He's like, I'm just going to hold him, hopefully he'll just pay me and then I'll let him go. But Paul knows this is where he's this is exactly where he's supposed to be. Like this is the place with which he is supposed to stay. And that's provided him the opportunity to have regular gospel-centered conversations with the Gentile leaders. Like really, really, really cool situation. Picking the story up in chapter 25, verse 1. It says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. I just want to point out, this is like the fifth time a case has been laid out against Paul. How many times does this guy have to hear about the fact that he's done nothing wrong and he keeps it being tried? But that's not for today, okay? Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he. Let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about that man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, I just love that name, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried." To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am the wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. It's a critical phrase right there. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So the situation keeps getting more and more dramatic for Paul. He has now appealed to Caesar. Paul's a really shrewd, shrewd man. He's really wise. He knows that if he's released, right, because now Festus is going, I don't really know what to do with you. Do you want to just go? No, I mean, like, Festus is trying to get his hands off the whole situation. But he knows that if he's released, Paul will be killed. The mob will get him and they will kill him. In fact, it talks about how they had wished for it and that they were planning to ambush him again. But this appeal to Caesar means now that Paul must be escorted by Roman officials to Caesar under their protection. So now, this whole time, Paul has dreamt about, and we've only talked about this a little bit, dreamt about going to Rome to minister to his friends in Rome. And this appeal basically makes it happen. Because now he's not only going to get to go, but he's going to be escorted by the Roman officials, by the highest level of protection. He uses a standing legal mechanism to protect himself on the way to Rome. But he doesn't leave just yet. His time in Caesarea is not over, and some new characters show up, and they're pretty interesting. Check this out. Verse 13 and 25. It says, "'Now when some days had passed, Agrippa,' another great name." Any parents out there that need a name? Agrippa, okay? "'Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, "'This is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him.' asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow said he, you will hear him. So now we have this point where it's like Paul's made his case like an incredible amount of times and Agrippa's like I know all of you guys are really smart but you know who really needs to hear him again? Me, cuz I'm the smartest. Okay? So I think that's a funnier response. Here, we, we see Agrippa, who, by the way, is the king of Judea. So, essentially, he's the king of the Jews. So, he's really familiar with what's going on, which is why I also find it odd that he wants to hear it, but, but Agrippa is not like the man of the most high standing. He actually comes from a long line of really shady characters. In fact, one of them is recorded back in Acts chapter 12, which we talked about way back when we were in chapter 12. I just want to read you these few verses from 12 about Agrippa's dad, okay? It says this, chapter, or chapter 12, verse 20. Now Herod, this is the name of Agrippa's dad, was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, another great name, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So Agrippa's dad is this guy who was like, I'm a God, and then he gets struck down and eaten by worms. So the, uh, the genealogy, not so great for Agrippa. Then it goes on to say this in verse 23 of chapter 25 about Agrippa, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with these, I love these words, great pomp. I love the description that Luke puts in some of these parts. They came with great pomp. That's totally unnecessary, but they want you to know, these guys are full of themselves, okay? So they come in, it says, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Of course they did. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that, they not, that he not ought live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as, himself, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. So he's like, I'm going to send him. But I have nothing definite... To write to the Lord to, to my Lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indict or indicate the charges against him. So Festus, much like everybody else to this point, except for the Jews, is baffled because they cannot figure out what Paul has done wrong other than believing in Jesus and speaking about that belief. He's like, I've got nothing to tell them what he's done wrong. Help me out, King Agrippa. Chapter 26, verse 1 says this. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand. I love this image. It's like he was like, I'm going to make this beautiful speech to you, okay? And he made his defense. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise Made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they were earnestly worshiping or worshiped night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it the thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? Let's pause right here. Paul says something very important and powerful. He says, I'm on trial. Because of the hope I place in God's promises. That's why I'm on trial. Promises that were made to our fathers, which is their ancestors, and that are true for everyone standing here. Not only back then, but everyone sitting here today. I find it interesting that Paul is on trial for God's promises, but we know it's true. He's simply proclaimed what has been true since the beginning of time. Now, I thought, okay... Let's take a moment and read a few of these promises that God has made to his people because I want this to be encouraging. And I started reading some of these. I went back and looked. I write these verses down where God makes promises to his people, and they're so encouraging. So let me just read a few of, you, few of them to you, if you will let me. The first one is this, and they're actually going to be on the screen. Isaiah 41.10 says this, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31 7 through 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in the possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Psalm 32:8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God's got his eyes upon you. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You you have only to be silent. Isaiah 41, 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. And the last one, Isaiah 54, 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Paul knew these scriptures by heart. He knew these were the promises that God made, and he can stand there in front of the audience and say with confidence that he's going to proclaim the gospel regardless of the consequences because God has promised that he's not going to leave him. He's not going to forsake him. He doesn't promise that life's going to be easy, but he does promise that he will sustain us through life's trials. He doesn't promise that there's going to be no trial, but that he's going to be with you through your trial. Paul's audience also knew these scriptures by heart. They knew that God had promised to carry them through any resistance that threatened God's plan, but they lost their way. They did not see Jesus for who he was. They knew the promises about Jesus' arrival, and they forgot, and they did not want to believe because they did not want to trust in a man who seems so simple, so down to earth, and so they viewed this testimony as a threat, even though they knew better. So Paul, in verse 9, chapter 26, he continues his defense, and we're almost through it now. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now pause right there for a second. That last line is actually not in the original account of Paul's transformation conversion in chapter 9. The word goads is actually a reference to a tool that is used to prod an animal. It's like a stick or a whip. And so Paul's showing his audience that even though he wanted to continue with his journey of persecution, that even though he felt compelled to go do this thing, that God was actually working in his life before this moment of conversion to persuade him otherwise, even though he felt like this is the thing I have to protect, actually, this threat is going to, going to ruin the religion I have given my life to. All along, God had been working in his heart beforehand, before this conversion moment. That's why he says, you pushed against the goats, meaning you have known now for some time that this is not what you're supposed to be doing, and yet you continue to do it, which is why he knocks Paul off off of his donkey, onto the ground, and has this moment. So Paul can empathize with his audience. He understands the same compulsion to fight against what Paul himself is doing, but he says, I just knew better, and I think some of you do as well. In verse 15 it says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose— To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, so that I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that in Christ must that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. There's something important about what Paul's saying here. In each of these opportunities that he's had to make his case to give his defense, he's done one thing every time. He's proclaimed the gospel. The very thing they're trying to stop him from doing, he has been able to do it in front of larger and larger audience. But specifically, the way he's done it is by giving his personal testimony, Paul's a well-educated man. He understands the language of his primary audience being the Jews who are accusing him, but he also knows that he's called to the Gentiles, as he said, over and over and over. And so he has to speak in a way that uneducated, unreligious people might understand. And so rather than delivering this well-designed defense of Scripture and theology as Paul could definitely do. I mean, we have so much of the New Testament, thanks to Paul and his teachings. He uses his story over and over and over. Your story, the one where God rescues you from death and makes you a new creation in Christ, is your most effective tool to deliver the gospel. When you're not sure about what to say to somebody, when they say, hey, tell me about your faith. Tell me about what you believe. When you're not sure, I encourage you, just like Paul did, start with your story. Tell your story of transformation and every single thing that has happened in it. Okay, last little section. Verse 24. And he was saying these things in his defense and as he was, sorry, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud, loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, and this is the last line we're going to read, and I want you to hear it loud. Whether short or long... I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul saying, yes, I would, whether it takes me a short time or a long time, Be committed to the very thing that I know is best for you, that you accept Jesus as I have, except for these chains. Meaning, I don't want the bad for you, I want the good for you. I want you to hear this message. I want you to hear what God has done in my life. You've all seen me since I was a kid. You all know what I'm about. I was very much about protecting our religion and going against this message of Christianity until God gripped my life. And it doesn't matter what it takes if I'm going to stand here in front of a trial again and again and again. And I'm going to go to Rome and stand in front of another group of people who are going to try me. And all these people who want to kill me. And I just want to proclaim to you the goodness of Jesus. And I want to tell you my story. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. That's incredible. These last three chapters highlight the commitment that Paul has had to sharing the gospel. You know, this compulsion that he has, that he can't, he was so strongly pulled one way that when God corrects him, he can't, you know, he can't help but be even more compelled to go do that. And my prayer this week for all of us has been the same desire in our hearts, that we would have the opportunity over and over again to proclaim the gospel specifically through our stories. You know, I think the opportunities are not lacking. I think sometimes we just miss them or we're too afraid to take it. And I've been there. I've I've been there plenty of times in the last few weeks, not paying attention, not really like, "Ah, I should have probably used that opportunity to to tell this person about Jesus. But then I read a story like Paul's, and I'm inspired, and I'm encouraged, and it leads us towards more and more courage. Paul could have escaped. He could have given up. He could have said what they wanted to hear in order to get out of their targets, but he trusted God, and he leaned into those promises, those same promises that we read that he knew that we have right in front of us in Scripture And we see that his mission has become a giant success. If you read this on the surface, you're going, man, Paul's arrested. He's being sent to all these places. And yet, if you read deeply enough, which is why we spent so much time over the last two weeks reading these accounts, is because he's done exactly what he's sent to do. And he's been provided for in ways that are uncanny protection, provision in ways that we just can't imagine. And that's why I can read to you in confidence a verse like 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And I'm gonna read this and then we're gonna pray and then we're gonna go where it's not so hot, okay? And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. There's no chance that Paul didn't understand this reality in those moments. And when we read these accounts and we see that the same thing is available to us, our courage should grow all the more to proclaim the gospel and tell our story. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for... The fact that you can speak to us, God, even when things are distracting, our week has been crazy or it's so hot we can't focus in here, God. Whatever the thing that's trying to distract us from the reality that you have called us to tell our story, to share the gospel, and you will provide everything we need to do exactly what you've intended us to do, God. So I pray that we would see that, that we would pray that reality, and that we would actually step into it with a little bit of courage, God. That we would go into the spaces we've known that have been called to, we're just afraid or we avoid it for whatever reason, God, that we would take that chance. We would trust your promise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, real quick, before you leave, make sure if you are interested in ladies' retreat,